Californians awoke to over 700 new laws on January 1st, 2011. For example, Senate Bill 1411 made it a misdemeanor to maliciously impersonate someone via a social media outlet or through emails. I'm going to have to deal with that later on. <clears throat> Senate Bill 1317 allowed the state to slap parents with a $2,000 fine if their kindergarten through 8th grade child misses more than 10% of the school year without a valid excuse. It also allowed the state to punish parents with up to a year in prison for the misdemeanor. Now, there's something that you should know about. Whether you are ignorant of these or the other 700 or so laws, you are under them and you can be held accountable to them. Now, the Jews, they were proud that they had God's law. It made them feel special. As we'll see tonight, it should have made them feel guilty. And so in verse 19 it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law, of course, is God's written revelation of Himself in the Old Testament. Those who are under the law, that's the nation of Israel in particular. The law was never a get-out-of-jail-free card. It wasn't a talisman or a good luck charm. The Jews and Paul included himself saying we, he said we were under it, subject to its standards. The law reveals the absolute holiness of God and thus the sinfulness of man. A Gentile can understand through creation and because of his conscience that there is a God and that something is wrong in his relationship with God. A Jew having the law knows all about God and exactly what is wrong, sin that cannot be atoned for by any of Adam's descendants. And so verse 20 says, Therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The deeds of the law are the outward obedience that's required by the law. Things like don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery and the rest. The law was meant to reveal an inward standard of righteousness that it was impossible for men to achieve. An inward standard of righteousness that it's impossible for men to achieve. Jesus said that if you even hated your brother in your heart, you were guilty of murder. If you coveted anything in your heart, Corvettes, you were guilty of stealing. If you lusted in your heart, you were guilty of adultery. Deeds, therefore, are not sufficient righteousness when there is death in the heart. And so the idea is very simple. Just take the Ten Commandments. Uh, although we're talking about more than the Ten Commandments, but just the commandments which summarize the holiness of God, when you read them, the intent of them is to say, wow, I am blowing it. God says, thou shalt not covet, and I covet all the time, every day. God says not to murder anybody, and though I've never actually murdered somebody, to my knowledge, I've hated individuals enough, before I was a Christian, for sure, to kill people. And all the rest. And so the idea isn't that, boy, I'm going to look. I, you know, when I was growing up in the Roman Catholic tradition, I thought, man, I haven't killed anybody. I uh, haven't committed adultery. I haven't done any of these things. Of course, if I do some of them, I'll be okay because I can atone for them later in purgatory. But I haven't done any of them outwardly. And I thought, well, I'm doing all right. And so Paul, this is the attitude of the Jew. And, and, and Paul is saying, no, no, you're under the law. And the law is telling you what a sinner you are. You, you haven't kept the law. You can't keep the law because it has to be kept from the heart. 
no one can achieve a righteous standing before God. With God's greater revelation through the law came only a greater knowledge of sin. The Gentile who has an idea that there's something wrong, that there's a creator that has conscience, he doesn't have a full knowledge of sin. He doesn't know really uh, everything that he could know about God the way the Jews did. One commentator pointed out, the law is an instrument not of justification, but of condemnation. J. Vernon McGee put it more colorfully. He says, to hold on to the law is like a man jumping out of an airplane and instead of taking a parachute, takes a sack of cement with him. Well, believe me, the law will pull you down. It condemns man. And so that's his picture of the law. You're, you're in an airplane, it's going down. You grab a sack of cement and say, I'm going to be saved. Uh, it doesn't work that way. The whole human race stands condemned before God in these verses because our standing is far short of God's standard. The only righteousness that, is an absolute, that an absolutely holy and perfect God can accept would be His own. If you are to have God's own righteousness, it obviously cannot be achieved by any faithfulness on your part. It can only be received by faith if God wants to give it to you. So Paul is telling us that God declares you righteous when you trust Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. The Bible uses a special word for this declaration. It's the word justified. Justification is the act of God whereby He declares a believing sinner righteous on the basis of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The Bible Knowledge Commentary explains it like this. Justification is a forensic declaration of righteousness as a result of God imputing to believers Christ's righteousness provided by God's grace and appropriated through faith. The idea that they're getting at there, same idea is that when God looks at a believing sinner, he's able to see Jesus Christ because of what the Lord has done on the cross and declare us righteous because we have the Lord's righteousness. He has taken upon himself our sin and exchanged it for his righteousness. And so we begin now to look at justification by faith in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. If there's one phrase in the whole book of Romans that should excite you, it is, but now. You've just been condemned for three chapters. There's no hope of achieving a righteousness that can save you. Every mouth is stopped. The whole world is guilty before God. Even God's special nation is guilty and without sufficient righteousness to save them. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. God looks upon you to save you, and even though you can't stand before Him, He's made a way to change your standing he saves you by the righteousness apart from the law. In other words, it is God's righteousness made available to you in another way other than perfectly keeping His law, which no one can do. So The truth is, you could be declared righteous if you could perfectly keep the law of God. But you'd have to keep it from conception all the way through your life until death. And that's only been done one time by Jesus Christ, because He was fully God and fully man. And so Paul says, apart from the law, there is another way of, achieving, of, of receiving this same righteousness. Since it doesn't come through the law and you have no hope there, God has made another way for you to get it. The Gospel reveals this way of righteousness apart from the law. 
And it does so in full agreement with the Old Testament, what he calls here the law and the prophets. That means that everything we're talking about, it's nothing new. It's not a compromise or a concession to sinners. It's not that God looked down and said, you guys are having a hard time obeying me, so I'll, I'll lower my standards so more of you can get in. A lot of that, that's happening a lot today, isn't it? In schools and in jobs and you read articles about it. And I, you know, I don't want to get into that because it, it, it incites a lot of feelings depending on what groups we're talking about. But, you know, we, we tend to lower standards. I know that uh, I remember when I was going to the University of California, Riverside, it was easy. I, I skated through UC Riverside the two years I was there. And I would talk to my professors about that and they would say, man, it's not like this in Europe. It's not like this in Japan. It, those kids really study. <laughs> you know, and, and we just didn't. And it's just getting... Standards are lower and lower. We're lowering our standards rather than raising, uh, you know, the, the understanding that people have. And so God didn't lower His standards. He didn't say, well, nobody can keep the law, so I'll come up with a new alternative. No, this was all part and parcel. It, it was of the same thing. The law was given to show you the standard so that you'd understand that you could only be saved one way, and that is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's always been the thing. I can't wait to get to chapter 4 to talk about Father Abraham, who had many sons. Anyway, I'm not going to do the whole song. I'll do it when we get there. Father Abraham? We could do that, right? Sure, why not? Anyway, uh, some of you think, "What, what is he talking about? Who is Abraham? If you don't know who Abraham is, your standards are too low. But anyway, uh, the thing is, we get to Abraham and God, God will say, listen, here's, hey guys, here's the first Jew. He happened to be a Gentile, which is interesting. So the first Jew is a Gentile because God said, I'm going to make a new nation out of you, the Hebrew nation. I'm going to take you out of pagan idolatry. And, you're, you know, and Paul will say, how was, basically he says, how was Abraham saved before Jesus Christ? And he'll say, he believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness. He was saved apart from the law. In full agreement with the law, with no contradiction, but he said this is the way people have always been saved from the Garden of Eden forward. Uh, And so the Gospel reveals a way of righteousness apart from the law. And it's nothing new. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness apart from the law comes to you through faith in Jesus. It's not ours by faith as we earn or deserve it because of great faith. It is ours through faith by simply believing God. doesn't mean you have to have some great faith in order to earn salvation. It means that it's all of grace and we simply believe it. And believing or having faith is not an act. It's not a deed. It's not a work. It's just an acknowledgement. One of the commentators, William Newell, says... Faith is not trusting or expecting God to do something, but relying on His testimony concerning the person of Jesus as His Son and the work of Jesus for us on the cross. After saving faith, the life of trust begins. Trust is always looking forward to what God will do, but faith sees that what God says has been done and believes God's Word, having the conviction that it is true and true for ourselves. And so, saving faith is simply agreeing with God, believing God, saying that what God is saying is true. Verse 22 goes on, says, To all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Since it's by faith, God's righteousness is available to all and on all who believe. Birth, gender, status, culture, none of these is an advantage in one sense or a hindrance. Since all descend from Adam, Jew as well as Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When it comes to righteousness, there is no difference. None can achieve it. All can receive it. Some of the things that God does, at first you, you kind of disagree with it. <clears throat> like, you know, when we talk about Adam, Adam and Eve, and there's a lot of people who have said this over the years, you know, Adam and Eve, they're, they're in this situation and God tests them and gives them the one you know, rule. He says, don't eat of this tree, and they blow it. And then they bring sin into uh, the human race, and sin is inherited, and it's imputed, and all of this. And people, you know, that's not fair, people say, that, that I have to you know, bear uh, the curse because of what Adam and Eve did. Almost as if if I were in the garden, you know, I wouldn't have made that decision. Or at least give me the chance, my own chance. And, and you know, people say, I, I, I don't want... I don't want to be in Adam in that way. But, because God has set it up that way, we can also be in Christ. And so when Jesus comes and dies for the sins of the world and rises from the dead, I can have new life in Him. He can also represent me the way Adam represented me. And now it's starting to get pretty exciting. I think, yeah, that's the guy I want. I, do, I, I want Him representing me. I don't really want to be in the garden being tempted. I don't want to be in the wilderness being tempted the way Jesus was... I'll just let Jesus handle all that for me and I'll just be in Him. And so the first man, Adam, we're in Him. But the second man, Jesus, we're in Him as well. God's righteousness available to all. Fall short could be translated, you keep on falling short. No amount of effort can get you to God's perfect standard. Justification by faith is accomplished by the work of Jesus on the cross. Paul looks at the cross in verses 24 through 26. Notice as he does his references to redemption and the blood of Jesus. He says you're justified freely, verse 24, by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. You can only be justified freely by His grace. All fall short without any hope in any way of ever achieving righteousness. If you are ever to stand before God, He must freely give you His own righteousness. Since you can't earn it and don't deserve it, it must come to you as a gift by grace. Each person, as he or she simply believes God, is justified by God freely by His grace, it says. While you are justified freely, it was costly to God. It says it was through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, by His blood. At the cross, it cost God the life of His Son to make your justification possible. Your sin was put to Him so that His righteousness could be put to you. I was listening to uh, somebody talk today about this and, and it just a reminder of, of what you know, we sometimes think. Uh, this, this is not the kind of plan that you and I would come up with. This is, this is uh, way beyond the realm of any, anything that, that you could concoct on your own. You, all you have to do is survey the world's religions to see the kinds of ideas that we have. Uh, but the idea that you would send your sinless, perfect son to be a man, the God-man, and to die for the sins of the world, for sinners uh, who are in rebellion against you, it's, it's, a, it's an unusual plan to say the least. 
Something else took place at the cross. Paul says there that God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins previously committed. God is righteous and He must judge sin. For many centuries before the coming of Jesus, He had been passing over the sins of men and Paul says He did so on account of forbearance. God was bearing with sinners... We read in the New Testament, why? Because He's not willing that they should perish, but they should come to repentance and eternal life. But not just His forbearance, God foresaw Jesus dying on the cross and taking the wrath against sin due sinners upon Himself. And so, because the Lord knew what Jesus would do, He could legally pass over generations of sin knowing that they were going to be paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ. Men always misunderstand God seeming to pass over their sins. They do not believe that God is righteous, that He judges sin, and that all sin everywhere calls forth His wrath against it. At the cross, God demonstrated before all the universe, once and for all, His righteousness in judging sin. You know, it's interesting. There are people who make this argument. They say, well, you know, look at all the evil in the world. People get away with things and there doesn't seem to be any direct intervention of God or any judgment or anything like that. Uh, but to me, it's like, you know, I mean, just think of the average criminal. Uh, I mean, a criminal can get away with his crimes sometimes for a long time. Uh, but usually, I mean, there are unusual cases, but almost always the law catches up with criminals. And then their judgment falls upon them, their wrath. And so it wasn't that the law was passing over them as if they, it didn't care about them. It just was the, you know, the way of things. And finally they get their comeuppance. And in a very different way, but in a similar way, God says, yeah, I, I saw what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And so I, I, I didn't have to wipe everybody out. I, I could have, I should have, but I didn't because I knew Jesus was coming to deal with this situation. Because God is propitiated, it says, which means He is satisfied. He can freely forgive all those who come to Him through the blood of Jesus. Propitiation means a sacrifice that fully satisfies the judgment of God against sin. Thus, all who receive Jesus as Savior by faith, they'll never face the wrath of God against their sin. Those who reject Christ, they will still face the wrath of God against their sin. They have to. Now, God's demonstrated something else about His righteousness at the cross. In verse 26, we read, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. At the cross and only at the cross can God remain just and also offer men justification by faith. If God does not judge sin, judge sin He is not just. The penalty for sin is death. And a righteous God must assess that penalty. God is not God if He doesn't judge sin. He must judge sin. He, he must remain just. He cannot acquit the sinner. The sinner is guilty. God can't just say, you're all guilty and I pardon you. Go about your business just like you were. He, he can't do that and really be God. He can't pardon the sinner. A sinner, a pardon ignores the righteous penalty of the law. He must assess the death penalty. The sinner must die. God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, 
in the day you eat of this, you, and the you extends to their offspring, you will surely die. That's the penalty. And so they had to die. At the cross, Jesus takes the sinner's place, takes your place, and God is able to assess that penalty on him for everyone. Thus, God remains just in judging sin, but at the same time, he can be the justifier of those who receive Christ by faith. And as I've said before, and as you realize as you go through the book of Romans especially, there is no other possible method of salvation if you really think about it. There's nothing else that could possibly take place given the facts of the case, given the reality of Adam and Eve, the test that they faced in the garden, their failure, and what it did to the human race. Only a God-man dying in their place, rising again, could solve this problem and allow God to remain just and be the justifier. Anything that doesn't involve that, it's not just that it isn't biblical Christianity, it's not salvation. It won't save you. It's, it's a ruse. It's a sham. God is just in justifying anyone who has faith in Jesus. As one commentator wrote, justice is no less justice, although mercy has her perfect work. Mercy is no less mercy, although justice is completely satisfied. As you read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He put your sin to Jesus so that He could put Jesus' righteousness to you. Now, since justification is by faith, verse 27 says, where's boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. And so this is telling us that you and I contribute nothing to justification. There's nothing internal that you can boast of as if you merited God's salvation. And there's nothing external. There's no law that you can obey that merits God's salvation. Verse 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Justification is by faith. It's for Jews. It's for Gentiles. It is God's universal provision of salvation for everyone whosoever will believe. Verse 31, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Justification, as we said, is nothing new. It was the principle of salvation in the Old Testament. It's the very foundation of the Old Testament, for upon it the law is said to be established. In chapter 4, as I indicated, Paul will look at Abraham and demonstrate, as he says in chapter 4, verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you were condemned, declared guilty and worthy of punishment, but now you see that you can be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus' work on a cross, you can be declared righteous. His righteousness can be put to you. God's justice is satisfied by Christ's death, and there are no grounds on which He can justly punish you anymore. He remains just, having judged sin, but He is also the justifier of the one who has faith in the Lord. Since justification is by faith, it is not a process or a performance. It is a pronouncement at a point in time. This is what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It was the realization that God pronounced an individual saved, justified, and from that moment forward, that person was saved, 
and it wasn't based on any uh, process or performance. It wasn't a matter of knowing that there's a God and then working really, really hard to make yourself more holy and hoping that at the end of that process you had done enough to please God. Luther and the others realized that God was saying, no, if you believe in Jesus, you're justified. It's just as if you'd never sinned. Now from that point forward, you're going to grow in Christ. We call it sanctification. You become more like Christ. But you're never more saved than you are at that moment. You're just as saved the day after you get, uh, are justified as you were the, the day of justification. You can mature, you can grow, but it, it's a pronouncement. And that's a radical difference from what was going on, from what the church was teaching. You don't need sacraments, you don't need rituals, you don't need rites, you don't need any of those things in order to be saved or to maintain your salvation. You're saved. And then because of what the Lord has done for you and because you're so in love with Him, uh, then you, you, you learn about Him. You take His yoke upon you and learn of Him. And you walk with Him and you grow in that love. If it were a process, it would take place gradually over a period of time as you perform commandments and sacraments. But it's not. It's a pronouncement by the judge that you are not guilty by virtue of his son's work on the cross. If you were in court, there's a big difference between somebody saying you're not guilty and you're not guilty but you have to work things off. I mean, what kind of a thing is that? I mean, You've seen these courtroom dramas, or maybe you've been a courtroom drama. Who knows, you know? But, I mean, when they, you know, you're shackled and they drag you in, you've been in jail, and then when the verdict comes in and says, not guilty, man, you're free. That's it. You're done. You leave. You go on with your life. They don't say, you're not guilty, and now for the next 20 years, you're going to work on a chain gang. What? But see, that's what religion does. Religion says, God has declared you not guilty as long as you work on the chain gang. And whatever that happens to be. Whatever sacraments, whatever rituals, whatever, you know, ten speeds you write. Whatever it is that you have to do in order to become really saved. Uh, and, and this is a radical message Paul is giving. And, and, and people always think, well, wait a minute. You know, then you're saying that I get saved and I don't have to do anything after that. I just, you know, live my life and... Stay in my sin. And as I've said a couple times prior to this, if that's your thinking, then you're probably not saved. God doesn't save you to stay in your sin. He frees you from your sin. And, 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 and so the, the grace message, it's pretty radical. But it's radical in a good way because it brings you into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. If you stand before God in His Son's righteousness, the wrath of God against your sin has already fallen upon Jesus and you will enjoy an abundant life on the earth, spiritually, but especially in eternity, where the Lord has your inheritance stored up for you. Amen? All right.